This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. We need certain nutrients like copper to help build concentration good fats that we find in foods like peanuts and nuts to help with growing those neurons. So a lot of rapid development in both brain and body really warrants a lot of nutrients that we find in complementary foods. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll learn how to understand subclinical effects of inflammation. We'll find out about the natural health benefits of peanuts for small children. We'll discuss the best recipes for homemade pizza. And lastly, we'll talk all about movement longevity. But first, a little bit of business. Omega Alpha is 100% Canadian-owned and has been GMP-certified for manufacturing to pharmaceutical standards since its inception in 1992. It uses only all-natural herbs, vitamins, and minerals in their formulations. The company is site-licensed for manufacturing nutraceuticals by the Natural Health Products Directorate, a division of Health Canada. They have four company divisions, both a consumer line and professional line of human products, equine pet health products, and a custom manufacturing private label division. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit their website at omegaalphainc.com. Omega Alpha's products are created by their scientific team headed by their owner, operator, and CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Dr. Chang holds a PhD in physiology and biomedical engineering from the University of Toronto. He also has two years postdoctoral experience in clinical biochemistry, looking at free radicals and antioxidants. He's published over 20 peer review articles and conference proceedings, and he's a regular on this show. Welcome back, Gordon. How are you? Nice to be talking to you again, Jamie. Today, we're going to get literally underneath the surface because we're going to talk about the subclinical effects of inflammation, which is a very heady topic, Gordon. You have me intrigued. Yeah, today I thought I'd wanted to talk about inflammation because people just don't realize how important inflammation is into all the disease processes that we have going on, right? Yeah. For example, right now, I am undergoing my yearly allergy response to trees, to yep. pollen. Right? Me too, yep. And most people think of it as allergies, but they don't classify it as an inflammation, right? For example, the itchy eyes, that's inflammation at play, right? Yep. The respiratory tract, not being able to breathe properly, inflammation of the sinuses, right? And that's just one of the things we talk about inflammation, mm-hmm. right? We also talk about things, we say we use things like antihistamines to help with itchy eyes, etc. But what people don't realize, histamine is another causative agent of inflammation. Sure. Right? There's so many different ways inflammation impacts us. And normally when we think of inflammation, we think about, you know, a bacterial infection and the inflammation occurs because of a bacterial infection. But what we don't realize about inflammation, inflammation is the response of the body to some sort of an ex- something from the outside that's happening to our body. It's how we respond, right? Yeah. Even when we get down to talking about something like COVID, right? There are people who, when they get COVID, what happens with them is that there are some people who have no symptoms. 
then there are the other people who require to be in the hospital. And all that has to do with how their body responds to it inflammation-wise, right? Right. So these inflammations are the bodily responses, but it's a tissue response, right? It's like, a, yeah. It's a, Well, yeah, it's a body response, and if the body is, you know, it's all about the tissues, too, in the body, right? Yeah. Right? And so, again, that has to do with the immune system, how the immune system responds to it, right? And when we put the immune system, we put it in a big black box, but the immune system has many, many different, how would I say, um, little places, right? Little packages, right? And what happens with that is that it depends on which part of the immune system gets bumped up, right? Mm-hmm. And it plays many different roles, right? Because you think of some as simple as atherosclerotic plaque formation, right, atherosclerosis, right, that the underlying cause there has also been attributed to inflammation. And sometimes people say, well, how how does plaque formation tie into inflammation, right? Well, one of the theories about how plaques start forming is because at some point, you know, your your blood vessels are nice and smooth, but at some point, there's a little damage that occurs in, in the blood vessel wall. And then when that gets damaged, what happens? Well, the first thing is that the body responds by trying to, to smooth over the damage. And one of the things that it does, platelets come and stick to the wall to, to help stop whatever potential bleeding may occur. Well, when the platelets get there, one of the things they do, they release a whole bunch of other chemical factors. And these other chemical factors then bring in white blood cells, mm-hmm. right? White blood cells then come in, stick to it, and they release their own things, and they attract more white blood cells, right, and so on. And then what happens is then the surface gets damaged, and then it causes calcium to precipitate onto it and forms a calcium plaque, right? And now you can imagine if that happens at many different places along the cell wall, right? These are some of the things that could potentially happen and help build over time. And this is where I talk about subclinical inflammation. This is an example of subclinical inflammation. Right. So let's define that. Like as a lay person, when I hear that, I'm thinking, okay, so this is something, quote unquote, beneath the skin. It's not like a skin quality inflammation, like when you scratch yourself or, right. or, or you scrape. And it might manifest in physical pain, but it might not, right? Yeah. Like, a lot of times, subclinical, you don't even know it's happening until it's too late. Right. Right. But it doesn't mean it's not happening. Right. And one of the things that we have to try and do is to try and I would like to say treat, but treat is too strong a word because we don't even know it's happening. What we're trying to do is try and prevent it. Right. As an example, one of the things that people would use to say treat, and I put that in quotation marks, is to start taking a lot more antioxidants. Sure. Right. So you eat a lot of antioxidants in food. So if you eat a lot of fresh fruits and vegetables, it's the best way to get your antioxidants. But we also know there's a lot of people who don't eat a lot of fresh fruits and vegetables. They are your steak and potato guys, yep. right? If there's no steak, no potatoes, right? Any Anything looking green, they don't want to touch. Yep. And I have a nephew that's like that. You put something green, he says, well, what's that? And picks it out, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people like that. But anyway, the whole point about it is that Antioxidants is definitely one of the ways to go because one of the things I also say about antioxidants, every single antioxidant, right, is an anti-inflammatory, but not every single anti-inflammatory is an antioxidant. Okay. Uh, And I have to clarify that a little bit because one of the pathways for inflammation is a free radical attack. 
Yep. Right? So antioxidants basically stop that pathway or potentially can stop that pathway, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, you have inflammation that can be caused by histamines, right? Now, the histamines is also another chemical that could potentially work through a free radical mechanism, right? But, you know, until you get down into the, the little biochemistries, et cetera, sometimes you don't even consider that as a uh, free radical mechanism. Okay. Right? Yep. So this is why I said a lot, the antioxidant is you're stopping one particular pathway, but there's so many different other pathways that can occur too. So if that's true, if there's different pathways, are there different ways that we can sort of practice preventative medicine? Yeah. I hate to say this. There are things like exercise. Some people don't even why do, really care about why, that. Why do you hate to say that? That's Well, I mean, I try to exercise, but I do know there's a lot of people who don't want to do exercise. Yeah. Exercise has more than one beneficial effect. Sure. Right? Yeah. I mean, one of the things with exercise, too, it clears toxins. Right sure. from the body. If you're sweating right? enough, sure. If you're sweating enough, there's a lot of toxins that gets excreted through the skin, right? Mm-hmm. Exercise also activates a lot of different biochemical pathways, right? For example, if you have a sedentary life, I will guarantee you, you what we'll find is that your bowels don't work as good, right? Mm-hmm. If you exercise more, your bowels all of a sudden get more active. Right. Yep. And a good bowel movement is one way to get rid of a lot of toxins in your system. Right. Because one of the things with toxins is that if you excrete it out, it doesn't get reabsorbed into your body. So if, for example, intaking toxins from the outside, say, you know, pesticides in your food, and there's always a little bit left in the food. Mm-hmm. Right. You take it in, it gets absorbed. Most of it is absorbed through a diffusion pathway. So what that means is the longer it stays inside the body, the greater the amount will be absorbed. So if you have a good bowel movement on a daily basis, right, it goes out, it doesn't get absorbed. Well, that's sort of like your suggestion that there might be sort of pesticides and chemicals in our food. That goes to, I guess it's, it's another lifestyle component, right? Like avoiding foods or products that have those chemicals might be a way to stop the buildup, right? Yeah, but it's more than that because avoidance can only occur, can only help so much. Okay, okay? fair enough. Because in, in all fairness, I mean, when, when you can find pesticides in the Antarctic snow, Yep. What are your chances of avoiding, right? And one of the things that people don't realize is that the body has the ability to adapt to some of these pesticides, etc. cetera, sure. right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, the classic example I say, if you live the lifestyle of clean, don't do any of this, uh, nothing toxic, etc. right? Mm-hmm. And no, no, let me back up here. The example would be the bubble guy. Mm-hmm. You remember there's a, there's a guy who has no immune system. Right, the boy in the plastic bubble. Uh, yep, plastic bubble. Right now, imagine if you had an immune system, but you grew up in a plastic bubble. Well, the day I took you out of that plastic bubble and exposed you to everything in the air, well, I guarantee you'll be very sick or you'll die. And the reason is because your body has not learned to adapt yeah. to some of these things. All right, and once your body has learned to adapt to it. The response of the body is not as strong. And this is where I go back to the COVID situation too, right? Mm -hmm. The reason COVID is so deadly, right, to a lot of people is because the body has not seen the COVID bug before or the COVID virus before. Does not a cope with it. Yep. And if you haven't seen it, there's a minority of people who react very strongly to it, right? Mm -hmm. Now, imagine if this was the common cold, Right. I guarantee you, if the common cold was brand spanking you and just came out yesterday, people would be dropping like flies too. Yeah, I mean, people right. still 
pass from influenza, right? Like, I mean, if their immune yeah, system... No, no, no. Influenza and the common cold is two different bugs. Though, no, I understand right? that. But my point is, you can yep. die from the flu, right? That is true, right? And the reason we don't pay much attention to the influenza side of the business is because the influenza has been around for quite a while. There is some sort of herd immunity already in the general population, mm-hmm. right? With COVID, unfortunately, we don't have that herd immunity, right, yet. Yet. Mm-hmm. You're right. Give it time. We will. And what you're saying, I, I think, in sort of a collateral way, is some of us are more inclined to have suffer from inflammation just because of our genetic makeup, right? Like that, and that that is true. Now, I wish I could say there's a magic wand I could wave and say, okay, you're going to have a bad response, and you're not going to have a bad response, right? Yeah. The only thing I could say at this point in time is to try to minimize your inflammation, so you do more your exercise. Right, you take antioxidants, and one of the things about antioxidants, there's so many antioxidants out there, and people will say to me, "Well, which antioxidant is the best?" Because everybody's looking for that magic one bullet, sure. and I use the word "one bullet." Yep. Right? They don't realize, no, it doesn't work that way. You have to take a wide variety, right? Mm-hmm. And the reason you need to take a wide variety of antioxidants is because you have an antioxidant, but it has to be at the right place at the right time. Right. Mm-hmm. For example, if you want to prevent a free radical attack at the level of the eyes, you need to take an antioxidant that hangs out in the macular tissue, right? Meaning it's stored there. So if you get a free radical attack at the level of the macular tissue, the antioxidant is right then and there to help, right? Okay. Yep. You need antioxidants accumulate in different places. So, for example, one of a, a very good antioxidant that's out there is fish oil. Right? Now, fish oil gets incorporated into all cell membranes, but it takes time. You just don't take one dose of fish oil today and all of a sudden, magically, the omega-3 start appearing in all your cells. You just have to remember how many cells you have, what the turnover rate on these cells are. So you're going to be taking fish oil for a long time before it even becomes a part of your cell tissue, right? your cell membranes. Right. It's the same thing for all antioxidants. You've got to take it on an ongoing basis. Right, so it's not something that you take it one. You take two doses and boom, you're covered for the rest of your life. It doesn't work that way. So let's personalize it a bit, Gordon. Like following your lead, that you should be getting antioxidants from many different sources. What do you do, and how do you sort of keep that array? I take an antioxidant that we produce, and the reason I take that, it has a wide variety of antioxidants, and it addresses many different organ systems. I also exercise. Mm-hmm. Right. As I'm getting in my old age, I start um, exercising. Right. You know, when you're young, nothing harms you. You're bulletproof. Yeah. Right. Yep. As you get older, that's when you realize, you know, I should have done this when I was in a lot younger. But unfortunately, it doesn't happen that way. I'm right? tur- I'm turning 55 in a few days, and <laughs> I can tell you, the earlier you get in front of your health. And it should happen before it's too late, the better off you'll be as we age. Because we're not quite there yet. We're not old men yet. Yeah. And, you know, exercise, again, is one of the biggest things out there to help you give you better quality of life. Couldn't agree more. And this is what people don't think about. And even things like, you know, if you have arthritic pain, right, exercise is great. Because if you exercise, yes, it pains you, but you also build your endorphin levels so you can accommodate the pain. You can deal with the pain. One of the other things I tell people to do, you know, do a detox on a regular basis, mm-hmm. right? Because what you're trying to do is to lessen your toxin load onto your system, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and boost that immune system. Because a lot of immune boosters all 
or also antioxidants and anti-inflammatories in addition to all that. Right. Sounds sounds like good advice. Thank you for coming on the show today. What do you want to talk about next month? I think we should talk about a little bit about why people should take more vitamins, minerals, and so on. Sounds like a plan. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the health benefits of peanuts for small children on The Tonic. You're a genuine health enthusiast listening to this show today. And Activation Products is your dream come true when it comes to living in a perfectly healthy body. Reclaim your health, cleanse your body, and extend your life. Activation makes all this possible by providing you with the best products for your best health. Activation Products can elevate your whole body's health in ways you had no idea were possible. No matter how old or how young you are, it's their mission to deliver to you the most efficacious health products available in the world today. Treat yourself now and find out what it's like to live in a perfectly healthy body, making every day a joy to be alive. Go to ActivationProducts.com and start your journey on reclaiming your health. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained, natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Dr. Samara Sterling is a nutrition scientist with expertise in the use of plant-based nutrition for the prevention and treatment of chronic diseases. She currently serves as the research director for the Peanut Institute and has also worked as a nutrition consultant for various community-based nutrition projects. She holds a bachelor's degree from Stony Brook University and a master's degree from Andrews University and a PhD from the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Welcome back to the show, doctor. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. So my child actually has a nut allergy, not peanuts, but a nut allergy, which we found out when he was an infant. And I think that a lot of our listeners probably know of family members who've been diagnosed with nut sensitivities when they're quite young. But that doesn't mean that nuts, and in particular peanuts, aren't good for small children, right? Right. That's absolutely right. And of course, it's definitely unfortunate when we do see the allergies um, in children, of course. It requires a lot of maneuvering from the family, but... Like you said, it doesn't necessarily mean that peanuts and nuts aren't good for infants. In fact, the American Academy of Pediatrics actually recommends that we introduce complementary foods right around six months old to children. And some new guidelines that came out have actually shown that introduction of peanuts, peanut foods to infants early on between four to six months of age can actually reduce the risk of peanut allergies as well as provide good nutrition. So definitely still good for children. When you say complementary foods, can you just sort of explain what that is for a sec? So complementary foods are basically foods other than breast milk or infant formula. So it includes other liquids, semi-solids, solids, and typically those are introduced around four to six months, more like around six months, when the child is sort of ready to eat other foods other than breast milk. So 
typically what the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends is that moms breastfeed for at least the first six months and then you can continue to do that up to a year or until the child is ready to be weaned off. But complementary foods basically mean foods that are introduced other than breast milk or infant formula. Got it. Why six months? What's happening with the infant's body and brain at six months that, that sort of changes things? Well, the mother's breast milk actually has quite a bit of nutrients in there, which is why up to six months, that's what's recommended to be exclusive. It's high in very good fats, high in uh, a lot of nutrients that help to build the immune system and things like that. Up to about six months, and even up to the first two years of life, though, there's a lot of development that happens both in the brain and in the body of children that really they need a lot of nutrition for. So think about this. By the time an infant is about four months old, their birth weight has doubled. And by the time they're a year old, that birth weight has actually tripled. So there are a lot of nutrients that play a key role in helping to support this rapid development. Protein is one of those that's involved in muscle growth, immune system development, forming bones, as well as brain development. And a baby's brain functions through, we have neurons as well as neurotransmitters. These are molecules within the brain that help to transmit electrical signals that communicate within the brain. So we need certain nutrients like copper to help build concentration, good fats that we find in in foods like peanuts and nuts to help with growing those neurons. So a lot of rapid development in both brain and body really warrants uh, a lot of nutrients that we find in complementary foods. So how should parents and grandparents integrate peanuts or peanut products into their infant's diet? Well, that's a good question. In terms of introducing them into your child's diet, it depends on the age. Mm-hmm. So we don't necessarily want to give whole nuts, whole peanuts, or sticky food like peanut butter to children under four years old, and that's because it increases the risk of choking. Mm-hmm. But what you, we can do instead is think about other forms of those foods, such as thin peanut butter. So basically, you can put peanut butter in yogurt, or you can put it in breast milk, or water, or formula, and kind of use that as a thinned version to introduce it into your child's diet. There are also some products on the market right now called uh, peanut puffs, and they are made with a rice puff. It's sort of a rice puff snack, and it's coated with peanut powder, and that's a really good way. Children tend to love that as well. And then another idea is actually just mixing in peanut butter with pureed fruits or vegetables or cereals. Those are good options, too. So I guess we kind of skipped over it, but maybe we should take a minute to discuss, like, what are the health benefits and the nutritional benefits of, of having peanuts? Yeah, nutritional benefits of having peanuts. So I did mention the allergy before, and that's actually one of the, the key reasons to introduce peanuts and peanut butter early on in a child's life, as is recommended by the new dietary guidelines, which were just released. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in conjunction with that, we know that the nutrients in peanuts are also really, really important. So a lot of people may know, may or may not know, that peanuts are a good source of plant-based protein. And we did talk a little bit about protein, but during that rapid development time within the first year of life for children, when they're growing their immune system and their muscles and their bones and and their nerves and all of these areas in their bodies, protein that we find in peanuts are really important to help to get that going. 
What we may not know, or what our listeners may not know, is that peanuts are also high in an amino acid called arginine. And it turns out that we know that research says that arginine intake from foods is actually associated with better growth velocity and linear growth in children. So in other words, children are, tend to grow a little bit faster or, or more regularly when they have included arginine, high arginine foods in their diet. And then we also know that peanuts contain a host of other nutrients like the good fats that our brains need, copper as well as choline that are important for brain development as well. Okay, so, you know, I touched upon it earlier in the interview, but peanuts happen to be one of those foods which may trigger sensitivity or an out-and-out allergy which might manifest in anaphylaxis. Do you want to sort of discuss that for a bit? Sure. So if your child does have an allergic reaction, I think the most important thing to think about when your child does have a peanut allergy is really management, right? So we don't necessarily want to think about avoidance completely in the sense of if you know someone is eating peanuts on the other side of the room or even in school settings or in other settings where parents may get a little bit nervous. I think the most important thing is really to educate children about what's safe, what's not safe, looking at the ingredient list on labels to make sure that they know what's in their food even at a young age, as well as being able to sort of identify if perchance they may come in contact with some allergen, as well as, of course, uh, no one wants to think about this, but always having that EpiPen with you, but just sort of managing that rather than thinking of complete avoidance. I think that's sort of the best way to go. You know, it's executable when your kids are a little bit older, like my son who is anaphylactic. You know, we trained him so that if he was ever outside the house, like we can control the environment in our house, but if it was at a friend's or if he was at school or whatever, to make sure to always ask whether or not, they, you know, if the person knew if there were nuts in the food that he was eating. And, you know, if we were at a restaurant, he would always like we would have him address the wait staff to ask questions about the food so that he became comfortable doing it. But that's not obviously that's not possible when the child's an infant, right? Like, you know, you still have to protect your small children who can't articulate. Right, definitely. And again, like you're saying, it's a process, right? So when children are younger, uh, we may not necessarily be able to implement some of those independent measures that they can take. Obviously, an infant won't be able to ask what's in their food. Right. But at the same time, it sort of takes that process of learning as a family and being able to think, okay, what do we actually stay away from? And what do we actually move away from for the sake of our child who is peanut allergic? And I I think over time it becomes a little bit easier for families. Peanut butter can impact children later in life. How does that work? Well, what we do know is that when we introduce good foods early on, it actually helps those good habits to stick as children are getting older. One of the things that we found is that introducing peanut butter specifically can help to increase the diet quality of children. It turns out that peanut butter is really a preferred taste for children, so pairing it with vegetables helps children eat their vegetables more. Mm-hmm. This is actually some research that was done. And then the other thing that we know is that from a health standpoint, 
it tends to reduce risk of cardiovascular disease. And we're starting to see more of these adult diseases in children nowadays. And so including peanuts and peanut butter early on, there was a study just a few years ago that showed that early introduction around six years, even when a child was six years, you started to see that peanuts and peanut butter tended to benefit the heart in very marked ways, reducing risk of early atherosclerosis in the heart. So that's really profound because we know that as we're seeing more and more chronic diseases, including small amounts of peanuts and peanut butter can actually help children as they get older. Okay. What about women who are pregnant? Is there any concern that, you know, perhaps they shouldn't have peanuts as it may impact uh, the child in the womb? No, uh, definitely no concern there as far as the research goes. In fact, the research tends to more so point towards uh, potential benefit for pregnant women. In fact, peanuts are a really good source of folate, which is a B vitamin that helps with initial brain development within the first three weeks of pregnancy. And most, most women don't know they're pregnant within the first three weeks. And so actually having that on hand, if you're a woman of childbearing age, having peanuts and peanut butter within the diet is actually really good. And then throughout pregnancy, we know that women need more of certain nutrients like choline. And so it's sort of a win-win situation for both mother and child, both in pregnancy and in lactation, increasing the nutrition for both the mother and the baby. Fantastic. We have time for one last quick question, and that is, where can our listeners go for more information about this? Well, if you'd like to check us out, go to www.peanutinstitute.com. And for more information on allergies, go to www.peanutallergyfacts.org. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. Looking for natural supplements to boost your immunity? New Roots Herbal can help. Whether it's rebuilding your immunity after an illness or simply maintaining a healthy immune system year-round, New Roots Herbal is here for you with a wide range of proven formulations. Discover Protector, Astralgus 8000, Ultra Zinc, and their best-selling Vitamin C8. If you're looking to build your immunity from within, look no further than New Roots Herbal, available exclusively at your local health food store. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Welcome back. In addition to being a lawyer, my next guest has been writing for Tonic Magazine for a very long time. And since 2015, she's written the very popular cookbook review column, My Wife Naomi. Hi, sweetheart. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. This is a health and wellness show, so it's a bit of a stretch. But then again, you know, you talk about cakes and all sorts of other things all the time. We're going to talk about pizza, which we should get up front is not a health food, but it is delicious. It is delicious. And when you make it yourself, 
somehow it seems healthier. Yeah. Maybe it is actually healthier. I Maybe. Don't I don't know. Maybe it's the process of making pizza that is sort of restorative or good for you. Yeah. We're learning new things. There's, Let, there's a lot of things. Let's go with that. <laughs> let's go with that. <laughs> All right. So we love pizza, right? Like that is a fact. We do. You know, Toronto actually has a reputation of being quite the pizza city. So let's talk about some of the pizzas that we like and like, you know, a little bit more than just your regular chain pizzas. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I started thinking about my favorite pizza places, I came up with so many. It was too long of a list. But regularly, we love Taroni pizza. You know, in the before times, we would go to Taroni, but we have certainly taken it out many times. Queen Margarita pizza, when it started uh, down in Leslieville, far away from where we live. We would trek out there to have their pizza because it's so good. And now there's locations in other places across the city. Maker Pizza, where there's a, a couple locations, one close to Pusateri's, Midtown. That's a place that we also get regularly. If you like the Detroit-style pizza, Descendant Pizza is excellent. Also down in Leslieville, that's the you know thicker crust, no edge. The toppings go all the way to the side of the pan. It's That's probably perhaps the least of the health food of the pizzas that we're talking about. That is not a light pizza. It's not a light pizza, but but it is really good. But for those who think that Chicago pizza is the bomb, first of all, they're wrong. But second of all, (laughs) Detroit pizza, if you're looking for a variation, if you're looking for like a pan-style pizza... I much prefer Detroit style. And actually, I understand there's some more places that have popped up in the mm-hmm. city. Exactly. One around DuPont, Bathurst and DuPont, or DuPont and Spadina, a new Detroit style pizza there. Yeah. So with all this amazing pizza, I mean, we could go on and on. And, you know, really, it is a personal preference, whether you like old school, thin crust, thick crust. You know, why bother making it? Like, why? Because it's labor intensive. It is. But so many things are labor intensive that I do. That's true. Why not pizza? It's good. At least if I'm going to go to the effort, then it should be good. And it is. It can be cheaper. Like it's not cheaper than ordering, you know, quick delivery to your house. But for example, if I was to order a more of a gourmet pizza, everybody getting their own individual pizzas, that could be quite a lot of money. Sure. 20, 25 bucks a exactly. head. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So if we buy the raw ingredients, make it at home, it's going to be much much less money and we can use higher quality ingredients or whatever ingredients we like, which leads to the next point, which is that you can make it exactly how you like. (laughs) You don't need to be embarrassed if you like pineapple or whatever. You know, you're at home and you can do whatever you like with your own pizza. Yes, without judgment. Without judgment. Like somebody we know who shall remain nameless who requested an olive anchovy and pineapple pizza and you know, we, we questioned it, but we made it, and he was very happy. Yes, he ate it. So there yeah. you go. And he said it was the best pizza he'd had, I think. Yes, I think he believes that I make the best pizza in the world. Mm-hmm. So yep. there you go. Yeah, and it's fun. Like many things that are work or an activity, if you're doing it resentfully, well, then don't. Yeah. No, you don't because you should just buy it. But if you think you know, if it's fun to deal with the dough or you know, you like the end product, you like the process, then sure, try it. So what does homemade pizza mean, though, right? Like, what does that actually mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I that was a question I thought of, and I thought, mm, okay, reasonable, because to my mind, it's anything that doesn't come to your house delivered hot in a box is homemade. Whether you cook a whole pizza from frozen, you buy a crust that's already made, you make your crust, you know, like it, all those things, they're all homemade pizza. And you can choose the level of you know work or effort that, you know, that suits you. Okay, so you and I are diverge on this point. I think if you're just going to the grocery store and picking up a frozen pizza and warming it up, I don't know if you're making homemade pizza. I think 
as soon as you are adding or embellishing, so in other words, if you bought like a pre-frozen, a frozen crust that was blank, and then you put, even if you put store-bought sauce, but you started putting the toppings on yourself, your own toppings, I think we're into homemade pizza territory there. I'm trying to be flexible. I know. And not but judge. I'm but But I'm rigid, so there you go. <laughs> And that's why we're such a good couple, because we have that dichotomy. So do you want to talk about crust for a bit or dough? Sure. Let's talk about the crust, because I think that people may not pay enough attention to the crust. So if you buy a cheap crust from the supermarket, that might be fine, but it's not the same. And I, I, you know, I particularly like bread and I like pizza crust and, you know, it can be thick, it can be thin, you know, it just, it needs to be good. It's framing, you know, it's the base for the pizza. And so you can buy raw dough, as many people know. Now that's widely available. And so, you know, it, it will be good. You just, All you have to do is kind of stretch it out or pat it out yourself and cook it. But you can also make your dough. Mm-hmm. And we've been doing that for a couple of years now, making the dough. I've, I've used a number of different recipes and it does taste good. You know, it, it does take more work and it's sticky. You got to figure out how to cook it and all that, but it's good. And it does give you the flexibility to decide the kind of crust you want and to cook it how you like. Right. And we've worked with yeast and sourdough and, you know, we've made like the thick pan style pizzas and the very crispy. And, you know, I I talked about it on another show, like I can barbecue pizza. Like there really is a lot you can do with it. It isn't just, you know, shoving it in the oven and making a perfect circle. There's a lot more to it. Yes. You have to just be willing to try and know that it's not, you know, the first time you make it, it may or may not be perfect, but it'll still be good. Like even in my opinion, even bad pizza is still pretty good. You know, the question is, is it better? How can you improve it? Do you want it to be crispier? Is it too sticky? What do you do with that? All right. Where do you want to go next? What do you want to talk about next? Let's talk about the components of the pizza, and then I'll talk about, you know, our actual experience. Okay. Um, The sauce, of course. Generally, like, we used to always buy sauce from the supermarket, but we've been making it ourselves. It's pretty simple. You can either do a raw pizza sauce, and you're the one that's been making this. Yep. You know, milling the tomatoes with some garlic and olive oil. Here's the thing about pizza sauce, right? Like, if you buy it, it's going to come with a lot of sugar in it, right? And it tastes good, right? Like, it, it tastes probably like the chain pizza that you're bringing in. If you like the more artisanal pizza and you're used to that, all they're doing is taking crushed tomatoes and sort of pulverizing it, maybe with some basil, maybe with some chili pepper, some olive oil, salt, pepper. You can do that too. And you don't have to break the bank. Like even if you were going to get an expensive can of San Marzano tomatoes to crush down, you're probably only looking at three or four dollars. And it's probably going to last you, you know, twice as long as the small can of tomato sauce that you're buying for two dollars. So it's exactly. just, you could freeze the yeah. you could use half and freeze half. Exactly. And crush it once. So that's actually quite simple and yep. makes a big difference. It does. I also made a cooked tomato pizza sauce, which also worked really well. It's very flavorful. You can make a white sauce. If you want to make a white pizza, you can make bechamel sauce or, uh-huh. you know, no sauce. You could put a pesto on too, right? Yeah. Like it doesn't have to be tomato based. doesn't have to be cream based. The only distinction is like that moisture. You just have to be aware when you're building your pizza. Like if you're not putting a sauce base on it, it can be dry. Exactly. The Cacio e Pepe pizza at La Palma restaurant is delicious. Like yep. they, I'm not sure exactly how they do it, but you know, the amount of cheese and pepper, it makes it just not dry and really yummy. A great example of a white pizza that is mm. not dry. hundred mm-hmm. percent. Exactly. Cool. And then for toppings, you've got, I'm a bit of a purist. I don't like too many toppings because it just, I find it makes it too heavy, but I always like cheese. 
you don't like cheese, you know, don't put it on. But I don't like fresh mozzarella only. I prefer either a mix of fresh and dried mozzarella or only the shredded mozzarella because it just has more flavor. The fresh mozzarella can be bland. Mm -hmm. But you can add other cheeses. You can add caramelized onions, mushrooms, roasted peppers, you know, garlic, spice, which we often add. And, of course, you can add meat, pepperoni, prosciutto. You can add vegetables, like I've made pizza with uh, shredded Brussels sprouts and eggs. For example, you can add potatoes, carbs on carbs. There's nothing wrong with that. Good white pizza. So lots of options for toppings, too. All right. So, I mean, you know, like we, we could get into a discussion about toppings, but it really is very subjective and personal. I would just say the higher quality ingredients you're putting on your pizza, the better result you're going to have. And having a basic understanding of how long certain vegetables cook for will edify as to whether or not, you know, you're putting them on midstream or whether or not you put them on in the start or bury them under the cheese or perhaps put them on top. That's the art of making pizza. What about resources? Exactly. Well, I just got a new pizza book called Pizza Czar by Anthony Falco, and uh, I made his Sicilian grandma pizza, which is a thicker crust pizza. Mm -hmm. I made two different kinds, one with pepperoni and one without, and they were great. I I really tried to follow the recipe, and I even contacted him directly to ask him some questions. He told me I needed to listen to the dough. I tried (laughs) to listen, but I was successful. You were. It did work. Yeah. So, you know, you can get a pizza book like that. You had many different kinds of pizzas and a lot of interesting information about pizzas. Or you can find pizza dough recipes, you know, anywhere or pizza like on the Internet. Smitten Kitchen has got a bunch of pizza recipes or other bread books that you might have, depending on how interested you are in, in making this stuff. So lots of resources in terms of like, I want to make pizza. How do I do that? you know, you can find that. And you need a hot oven for a barbecue. You know, you need a pan. There's all kinds of things that if you wanted to make pizza all the time, you would get like a pizza peel and this and that. But you don't have to have that. You can make it with the resources and things that you have in your kitchen for sure. Yeah, like really a sheet pan and an oven that is able to get hot, you're probably good to go. Cast iron skillet works really well, too. I've I've made pizza that way, and, you know, I like that, too. So, you know, there's things that you can do that most people have if you want to try it. And then if you really like it, you can go and buy additional things. But, you you know, you need heat, and you need, you know, some flour, water, yeast, tomatoes, and cheese, and you can have pizza that's really good. Fantastic. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. You're welcome. You're going to come back soon? Absolutely. Fantastic. That was Naomi Bussin. We have to take a short break. But when we return, we'll discuss movement longevity on The Tonic. Hi, I'm Jamie Bussin. I'm not only the host of The Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's a health and wellness publication distributed with the Globe and Mail to each and every home subscriber in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. And it can be found free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. You can learn more about Tonic Magazine at tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, check out the new look of Tonic Magazine. NutriPure is a Canadian company which formulates and manufactures natural health supplements over and above industry standards. Since 1989, it's set itself apart by providing a line of products that not only reduce symptoms, but target the causes of specific health conditions. In addition to its offering of superior products, NutriPure has always been there for its clientele with around-the-clock customer service led by health professionals. Talk to their experts on social media about their stress and anxiety product, Relax LT, containing magnesium, L-theanine, Skullcap, Linden, and Chamomile. NutriPure. 
Your health is their commitment. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Dr. Aaron Boynton, or Dr. B, is an orthopedic surgeon with a unique approach to musculoskeletal pain, blending both the art and science of medicine. As the first female orthopedic surgeon to work with the MLB and NHL, she's had extensive experience dealing with overuse or wear and tear injuries. Welcome back to the show, doctor. How are you? I'm doing great, Jamie. How are you doing? I'm doing well. We're going to talk about something called movement longevity, which I have to say I'm very intrigued by because I don't quite know what it means. What do we talking about? Well, over the years, I've seen so many people exercise and do really great at their sport, but then they kind of burn out. And the older I've gotten, I've really started to focus on movement longevity. Mm -hmm. And really what movement longevity is, is the ability to keep moving freely and without pain while you're alive. You know, I've watched my parents, they're now in their 90s, and my mom is really active, my dad not so much. And When I'm that age, I want to be able to do the things that I love to do. I still want to play tennis. I want to be able to walk up the stairs. I want to be able to sit down in a chair comfortably. So movement longevity is about keeping active and mobile and doing the things that we love to do in life. That makes sense. I ask myself sometimes when I'm in the middle of some of my harder workouts, why am I doing this? It's not not existential (laughs) dread. It's more like, why am I putting my body through this? And the only good answer I've come up with, it's because I still can, right? Like I want to be able to do this for as long as I can do it, but that doesn't really speak to how we go about making sure that's going to happen. Because I think what most people do is they find the time to do what they want to do and throw themselves into it. And, you know, the term is weekend warrior, you know? For sure. And I think your point about, you know, why are you doing this is a really good one. And when I think about movement, there's really two ways of looking at it. You can look at movement as a general health activity. Yeah. Or you can look at it as fitness, that you maybe have a goal that, you know, you want to run a marathon. And I think it's really important that you understand why it is that you're exercising and moving. And one thing that I I love to exercise and I love to play tennis. And one of the problems that I found with myself is that I was really busy during the week. And on the weekend, I would go out and I'd play like a million games. And then Monday morning would come around and I could barely move. Right. And I was feeling stiff and sore. And this was in my 30s and 40s. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, how am I going to be able to keep this up? And that's what really got me thinking about movement longevity. And I would see some of the ladies out on the tennis court and they're 90. And I'm like, I want to be like that. But the way I feel today, I don't know if I'm going to get there. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Like when I started this show, it wasn't even the magazine. It was this show that actually got me to focus in on this, where I started thinking about exercise in terms of a long-term plan. So like I've always played these little mental games, motivating myself, you know, to break, you know, a time record, a personal time record, not an actual time record, (laughs) you know, like with a row or something like that or increase to a hundred pushups, right? Which, which is in the moment and is something that's directly in front of you. But I've also started to think about, okay, so what am I actually doing in terms of my exercise that will perpetuate my ability to continue to do so into my older years? Right. And I think this is what you're saying, right? Like exercise, not just for the immediate goals, but with a plan to move forward, right? Exactly. I mean, we all know the health benefits of exercise, decreased cancer, decreased depression, Alzheimer's, all that kind of stuff. Great for your heart. But unless you pay a little bit of attention as to how you're doing the exercise, we end up breaking down. And I think this is the big thing I've learned, that 
what we have to start paying attention to is the imbalances that we're creating in our body over time with doing a repetitive movement over and over again and actually preparing our body for the imbalance. So we have to rebalance doing some mobility exercises so that we can go and create imbalance. Okay. And that is one of the key principles of movement longevity. We tend to just get out of the car, run under the golf course, or get out of the car, run into the gym, do our exercises, and then leave. And it's great for all of the reasons we just mentioned for our general health, but we're neglecting the soft tissue imbalances that we're creating by doing repetitive movement, which eventually over 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and most people start to feel this in their late 30s, early 40s, and 50s, we're creating these imbalances, which then become pain and stiffness. So the principle of movement longevity is to rebalance and create a foundation for movement, and it takes five minutes. And do this before whatever you're going to do in the gym, out on the tennis court, on the golf course, so that you can have fun and prevent the injury. All right. So this speaks to me directly because there's so many things that I want to do and continue to do. And five minutes is about the length of time for my short attention span (laughs) that I'm going to be capable of doing it. So, Aaron, tell us, what should we be doing with those five minutes? What are the exercises? I mean, you can get really detailed and do something like a movement assessment a la John Gray, Cook, where you'll have a physiotherapist do a movement assessment and find your imbalances, and then they can prescribe exercises for you. Right. There's a movement app called ROM Coach, which is free, that you can do a movement assessment, and it'll identify your imbalances and give you a little movement prescription. Mm -hmm. Or you can go look in the mirror. And you can say, what's my posture like? And we've talked before about head forward carriage, for example, where your jaw sits in front of your collarbones. Mm -hmm. Or if you find that your spine is really flat or if you've got your pelvis out of alignment, it's really postural exercises. These are the corrective exercises that we need to do every day to waken up the deep stabilizing muscles and also ensure that we're using the correct muscles because our problems occur when we use a muscle to do a function it's not really meant to do. Right. So the postural exercises are key. And the nice thing about them is, you know, we're not talking about like heavy weights, right? These are all small muscle groups, the stabilizers. It's more about getting them working as opposed to like beating them down, right? 100%. And short, frequent sort of, I call it the light switch moment. You kind of flip them on, you turn them on, you make sure that they know they're awake and they're in there and they're doing their job. And you have to just do it once or twice. And so you can do these simply like when you're standing in the line of a bank, when you're, you can squeeze your glutes. When yep. you're sitting in your car and you find your nose is touching your windshield, you can correct your posture. Yep. I mean, we all do these things. So it's really trying to be aware that your posture has fallen out of alignment, that these muscles have fallen asleep, and turning them on. Okay. Like, I know there's some, like, small muscle group type stuff. Like, if you're actually doing weight training are beneficial, maybe we can go through them and you can tell me if, like, they make sense just for everybody. But, like, you know, doing stuff like Superman or doing, like, arm rotations without even holding weights, like little arm circles. Like, is that the kind of stuff you're talking about? 100%. It's more important to actually just use your body weight, I think, for these exercises because we're not really, yes, we're trying to build endurance in them. So there is an element of endurance and strength, but it's really more having them on, turned on and firing and doing their job of stabilizing. 
So dead bugs, they're excellent. Push-ups yep. are fantastic. Uh, and if you can't do a push-up, you know, flat on the ground, do either a woman's push-up on your knees, or you can do them just against your kitchen counter. Lunges and squats are excellent exercises to, one, figure out whether you've got an imbalance. And then if you do, learning how to turn on your core so that you can go through the motion correctly. And I, I think this is one of the most important principles as well, is to do one rep with good technique, not 20 reps with the bad movement pattern. Right. One thing about the pandemic, my form is like uh, tippy-toppy right now because that's uh, <laughs> I've got all kinds of extra time to worry about whether my lunges and squats are, you know, I actually have had family members watch me to make sure that, you know, I'm not leaning over or I'm not arching too much, you know, like small little changes in, in your dynamics. I think the most important tool you can have in, in any workout room is a mirror, actually. Oh, you've hit the nail on the head and you're absolutely right. So you can, you watch yourself and you make sure that you're keeping your proper form. It's really key. And you know, there's all kinds of websites. We don't need to go over like what is proper form. We couldn't explain it on the radio anyways. So I, I would just say like, if it matters to you, go Google it, proper form, proper squat, proper push up, proper lunge, all those things will only help you in the long run. What about lifestyle? Like what can we do differently just in our day to day that's going to help with our movement longevity? It's a great question. And I think this is one of the most challenging things and it's developing a good habit. To me, movement longevity is part of a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. It's not something you do once and then you forget about it. So it's those little moments when you catch yourself with poor posture and you're corrected because we're going to do it. We're human beings. We're going to (laughs) slouch. So I'm a tremendous slouch. So there you go. (laughs) I'm there with you as well. But also I like this technique of coupling where say you do an activity every day, you walk the dog, Mm -hmm. or you're going to go to the gym. Then you couple your new little movement routine with something that you already do regularly and is an ingrained habit. And so you can tack that five minutes of warm-up or cool-down before the dog walk, before you go in the garden, after you go in the garden. But just it helps to ingrain it and make it a regular habit. Yeah, I actually tack it on to my workouts now. Like I've got a, a complex warm up and a complex warm down that I do, and it's just part of what I do. I just tack on a few minutes. That's when I'm thinking about it. So I figure for me personally, that's when I do it. But I understand what you're saying. And actually, that's ideal because what you're actually doing is not only warming up your body and preparing it to exercise properly, but you're going to perform better. Yeah. So if you're going out in the tennis court and you do a five minute warm up and you have all the right muscles working, you're going to run faster, you're going to move better, you're going to have more fun and you're going to prevent injury. So it's fantastic. All right. So we have time for one last quick question. And that is, when should we start considering doing these exercises? The younger, the better. Honestly, I think we should be having these kind of uh, education sessions in kindergarten. But I want to say for everybody out there, including myself, who didn't start doing this in kindergarten, it's never too late. Good to know. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. What do you want to talk about next month? I think tight muscles. Sounds good. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Gordon Chang, Dr. Samara Sterling, Naomi Bussin, and Dr. Aaron Boynton. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. The May-June issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to every single home subscriber in Toronto west of Victoria Park. 
or you can always visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can email me directly at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Next week on the show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are so important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.